Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. You know what the difference between a good podcast and a great podcast is? Intros, callbacks. Yeah, I think they're both probably important. Yeah. Well, let's get into the intro now, and then maybe later we can do some callbacks. Okay. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. Hello and welcome back to Past Gas by Donut Media. That's past, P-A-S-T. This is not a podcast about toots. This is a podcast about cars. And I am your host, James Pumphrey. And I'm your host, Nolan Sykes. Now, Past Gas is, like I said, not at all about farts, Mm -hmm. although I'm sure at some point we will talk about farts, but it is not the crux of the concept. Okay, Past Gas is an automotive history podcast. My son Nolan and I are going to tell you the stories behind your favorite cars, automotive figures, racers, racetracks, and everything in between. If you're already familiar with Donut, thank you so much for joining us on our podcasting journey. Uh, If you've never heard of Donut Media, we make car videos for the internet. They're very good. Yeah, if you like this podcast, you'll probably like our other stuff. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. So look us up. Today, we are continuing on in our four-part series on Ford versus Ferrari at Le Mans, one of the greatest rivalries in all of sports and possibly all of everything. Every, yeah. Heaven versus hell. Yep. 
Holyfield versus Mayweather. No, they never fought. <laughs> I'm not a sports boy. <laughs> Barks versus A and W. Barks versus A and W versus Mug. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Three way. On our last episode, we did a deep dive into the life of Enzo Ferrari himself, leading up to today's subject, the deal between Ferrari and the Ford Motor Company that ultimately fell apart and set the whole rivalry in motion. Our sources for today are Enzo Ferrari, Power, Politics, and the Making of an Automotive Empire by Luca Del Monte, and Go Like Hell, Ford, Ferrari, and the bat- and their battle for speed and glory at Le Mans, long as hell, uh, subtitle, really long. by A.J. Bame. I am super excited. Part one was awesome. Uh, can't wait to get back into it. Yeah. Um, and so we have the actual book. This one's not available on Kindle. No ebooks. Go Like Hell, though, is available wherever ebooks are sold. And it's a great book. I suggest you get it. It's a great You great love story. that little Kindle, don't I you? I love my Kindle. Shout out to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's get back into the story of Ford versus Ferrari. Okay. When people thought about American performance in the 1960s, there was only one name that came to mind. Corvette. Chevrolet debuted their European-inspired sports car in 1953 to wide acclaim. No mainstream manufacturer had ever built a car like it. The Corvette was the first production car to have a body made out of fiberglass, which, when coupled with a 265 cubic inch V8 in 1955, made it fast as heck. You could say it went like heck. (laughs) By the end of the 60s, the Corvette had a solid motorsports resume with wins all over the U.S. and abroad. Henry Ford II was having none of that. Henry, or Hank the Deuce, hell yeah, (laughs) was the eldest. Hell yeah, dude. (laughs) Junior? Nope. Deuce! (laughs) Was the eldest grandson of Ford Motor Company founder Henry Ford. He had taken the reins of FMC in 1945 and ruled with an iron fist ever since. He knew that a surefire way to sway people away from Chevrolet would be to prove Ford's superiority in the same place his grandfather began, on the racetrack. So, he set his sights on the most important racing series in the automotive industry to date, Le Mans. It is properly known as the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Though it is a name that needs no further introduction for those who know, the 24 Hours of Le Mans is one of the most dangerous races in the world. It is an arduous 24-hour-long endurance race where manufacturers prove to the world that their cars are the best on the planet. If you've ever wondered where the hierarchy of race cars comes from, This is the place. A win in Le Mans meant that you were the best, and the prestige associated with it has been seen by the whole world. Also, the drivers pee in the seats, and then the next guy to get in the car has to sit in his pee. That's how big of a deal it is. (laughs) If I were in Le Mans with you, I would just eat so much asparagus (laughs) the day before. (laughs) Like, I'll eat asparagus already having to pee yeah (laughs) and in the time that it takes me to walk to the bathroom and start going i'm like wow (laughs) already huh (laughs) it never ceases to amaze me it's one of my favorite things it's truly incredible (laughs) 
Ford knew that the best way to draw interest away from the Corvette and back to Ford would be to outperform everyone at Le Mans and wow audiences as he did it. There was no almost winning or almost being the best to Hank Deuce. He was going to win at Le Mans, no matter how many resources it would require. Once his sights had been set on Le Mans, Ford, Henry Ford II immediately started running into a few issues. The biggest of those issues was Ford's lack of racing experience. Ooh, I could see how that could get in the way. <laughs> yeah, Ford's cars had been used in racing in the past, but largely by, by private teams and companies, similar to Enzo Ferrari's Scuderia Ferrari in our last episode. He didn't race Ford's, but like that same principle. Yeah. While a Model T had been run within Le Mans, the real racing... Oh, my God. (laughs) Can you imagine (laughs) driving a Ford Model T with wooden wheels for 24 hours straight? That's insane. Your back would be destroyed. Destroyed. Um, The the real racing history at Ford began as the flattened V8... Just terrified going (laughs) zero miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as the flathead V8 had become legend among the hot-rodding community. In fact, a Ford Lincoln... uh, Ford um, Ford owns Lincoln. Yeah, had won the first ever NASCAR race in 1949. While their cars had been modified and used for racing in the past, Ford themselves never had an official racing team. In fact, the only racing experience the company had up to that point was an occasional race driven by Henry's old man's old man, Henry Ford Sr. Even though, thanks to Henry Ford, the company could claim to have a motorsporting heritage, it really was nothing more than just a claim. Every car manufacturer knew that to get investors, you needed to win races, and Ford was not a foreigner to that concept. But while Ford may have participated within motorsports, they certainly did not excel at it the same way that companies such as Ferrari and Porsche, companies who designed their cars with racing specifically in mind. Realizing he was lacking in certain necessary departments, Henry Ford II had an idea that is literally the embodiment of every rich person's version of the American dream. He decided that if he was not able to become the best racing endurance team, he was going to do the next best thing. He was just going to buy the best yeah. in racing endurance racing team. Yes, that's what I love. I love that. Yes, you know what they say, if you can't beat them, own them. If you can't beat them. Own them. He set his sights on one struggling company that had proven time and time again, uh, six times to be exact, that they knew a thing or two when it came to going fast for long periods of time. After visiting a race and observing the cars on the track, he pointed to one of them and said, We need those red cars, don't you know? <laughs> From Michigan. Oh, yeah. While Ferrari was basically one of the best when it came to racing, there was just one tiny thing that they were not so good at. That was having money. Everything Enzo Ferrari did, he did the expensive way, which is not exactly known for being the most efficient way to run a company. The company never made money due to the fact that every cent earned was funneled directly back into racing. Ferrari had been in a large financial decline recently, slowly meeting a fate worse than death. Bankruptcy. Without turning this into a macroeconomics lesson, the supply and demand curve was hitting Ferrari hard, all while John Locke was rolling in his grave. That's an economics joke. Anyway, Enzo Ferrari was suffering, and that is when Henry Ford decided 
to try to get his foot in the door of motorsports. One man's flaming dumpster fire of a financial burden is another man's opportunity. At this point in history, Ford and Ferrari were tailored to about as different a markets as was humanly possible. Ford built cars for the average consumer, for the family man, large, cushy land yachts that would slowly lumber down the highway. Ferrari built race cars that were dumbed down and made street legal, as Enzo had never really wanted to sell street cars in the first place. Ferrari sold street cars to fund racing development, which was the exact opposite of what was expected of American manufacturers at the time. When we last met Enzo, he was about to meet with a man named Filmer Paradise. By the way, weird name. Yeah, it sounds like um, like in the 20s when movie men yeah. first showed up to Los Angeles and they were like, this is a real Filmer Paradise. <laughs> the sun stays up 364 days a year. I just realized why Hollywood is here. Yeah, it's because of the weather. I feel like an idiot. And there's a lot of different um, terrains. Yeah. It being a high desert, you can get some mountain shots. You can shoot some cowboy movies out in the desert. You can shoot on the beach if you want. Maybe a little beach ball bingo. And then what do they do? They erected massive studios and shot everything inside. That is pretty counterintuitive when you think about it. Anyway, Film in Paradise, the president of the Italian branch of the Ford Motor Company. At first... Paradise proposed a partnership where Ford would sell Ford brand, a Ford-branded sports car designed by Ferrari, and in return, Ferrari would ba- make a bunch of money. Enzo was interested, but he knew that this was just a soft sell. American car makers had a history of beginning partnerships than buying a controlling share of the company they bought. In fact, Chrysler had done the same thing with small Italian maker Simca just a few years before. Enzo was willing to give up control of Ferrari road car production on one single condition. James, listen closely. This is important. Enzo would do it. He would partner with the Ford Motor Company if he could keep complete independence when it came to managing his race team, Scuderia Ferrari. That was all Enzo asked. That's all I ask. You can have all of the road cars you want but the racing, she is on my heart, and I will not give you my heart. To Ford, the idea of buying Ferrari made complete sense, as it allowed them to incorporate into their company a subsection devoted to this new kind of sporty automobile that had only recently been introduced to the United States. After all, a gentleman's agreement made between the major manufacturers in America nearly a decade earlier led to the promise that each company would not put any money into racing. It wasn't until Chevy started working on the Corvette project that the gentleman's agreement was blatantly violated, leaving all of Chevy's competitors in the dust when it came to the performance market. Chevy was sweeping the floor with Ford, and there was nearly a 15% market share increase by Chevy once the Corvette started winning races. As the saying goes, you win on Sunday, you sell on Monday. Ford was incredibly far behind Chevy in terms of performance, and now sales figures. As the purchase of Ferrari was a logical and on paper easy way to kickstart Ford's own performance division, after all, Ferrari would bring a competitor to the domestic markets and would bring along a very hefty racing pedigree. So, in 1963, 
Ford sent an offer of $15 million to buy out the entirety of the Ferrari company. Enzo Ferrari obviously showed interest in the offer. He was like, hmm, that's a lot of lira, brother. <laughs> As he was desperate for funding for his company that had only sold 493 cars the year before. Ford and Ferrari had come to an agreement. There would be two separate divisions of the company, a Ferrari Ford division that would exist to take part in races and a Ford Ferrari division that would exist in order to sell passenger sport GT cars. On May 21st, 1963, executives from the Ford Motor Company met with Enzo Ferrari at that Ferrari headquarters. While Ford made sure to arm an army of suits for the deal, Enzo Ferrari was surprisingly nonchalant about the entire situation, calmly sitting across from them with only his local town lawyer by his side to oversee the deal. The sticking point of the agreement came down to the racing side of the business. You see, Ferrari never had any huge interest in selling road cars, the sale of road cars was how Ferrari funded its racing division, like we said earlier. It was a racing company at heart and had no interest in changing that. The sale agreement between Ford and Ferrari stipulated that while Enzo Ferrari would still maintain control over the Ferrari Ford racing division, Ford Motor Company would have to authorize any spending by Ferrari Ford after the division spent 450 million lire. Uh, so I did some calculations with different inflation websites, and 450 million lire, which, you know, sounds like a lot, converts to about $771,000, uh, if my math is correct. Is that today's money? That's back then. Oh, that's At a lot of money. Right. Uh, so for a racing program as large and successful as Scuderia Ferrari, that's kind of nothing. Uh, this did not please Enzo. All he wanted was complete independence for his racing program, and this spending limit took that away. So Enzo pulled out his legendary purple fountain pen and underlined that entire section, writing beside it, no, non va bene, which translates to no, that is no good. After shouting a large amount of verbal abuse towards the executives from Ford in Italian, Enzo turned to his lawyer and said, Let's go eat or something. <laughs> Yelling at these Michigan men has made me hungry. <laughs> and they walked out, leaving behind a room full of stunned Ford suits. Now, what I think happened is like, mm -hmm. at first the negotiations is like, okay, yeah, you can have your racing division, whatever. And of course, I don't have any direct proof to back this up, but I feel like Ford might have been like, here's this guy in Italy... His company is struggling. Uh -huh. If we give him a huge amount of money, like $15 million, he's probably going to ignore everything else in that contract. Yeah, I think it's like, they're like, yeah, we're going to wave this big check in front of him. Like, he's not on our level at all. And to give him $15 million and then also only allow him to spend like... Less than a million? Less than a million dollars a year on the race team. Like, that just like... Doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it's just such like a big company move. Yeah, totally. Like totally. It's such like a, well, okay, it'll be yours and you'll be in full control, but I mean, you got to ask us. Yeah. When news of the failed signing reached Henry Ford II, he was stunned with rage, issuing the iconic order. Build me a car that will crush Ferrari at Le Mans, don't you know? <laughs> no, it's... 
Though some sources say that the order was actually Go to Lamar and beat his ass, don't you know? <laughs> I'm Hank Deuce, <laughs> and I'm not gonna let some stinky little anchovy-eating Italian tell me how to run my company. <laughs> my father built the assembly line, and I'm gonna assembly line his <laughs> The issue was that Ford didn't exactly know how to assembly line <laughs> Ferrari's <laughs> Ferrari was in their prime, having won multiple races at Le Mans in the years prior, and Ford had only just recently tried to get back into the racing game by purchasing Ferrari. <laughs> All Ford knew is they needed a car that could beat Ferrari and win at Le Mans. The car had to be fast in the straights at over 200 miles an hour, all while enduring over 3,000 miles of mechanical torture. So Henry Ford did what he knew best. He paid someone to figure it out for him. Do you, you know what? I came into this thinking, fuck Ferrari. <laughs> and right now, I'm thinking, Ford. <laughs> I was the same as you, and then I read some books. I mean, both these guys are terrible. <laughs> yeah. But Ferrari, less terrible than I thought. Ford, more. I don't think you'd get along with him. With Henry Ford? Yeah. No, I probably would get along with Ferrari, though. Yeah, he seems pretty chill. Mm, not chill. Maybe not chill. But <laughs> no, he's, no, he's not chill. chill, but he seems, I don't know. He, I he's think, self-made. I think what I'm realizing is I probably wouldn't get along with the heads of any major car company. Yeah. I'm more of a Well, you're you like you're ahead of you're ahead yourself, you know. Yeah. You like to be ahead. Yeah, I'm the fucking boss. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need any more bosses in the room with me. Chief engineer Don Frey called for the creation of what would be known as the Ford Advanced Vehicle Department, and he hired an expat British engineer named Roy Lunn to lead it. Roy Lunn had a history with Le Mans, having been involved with Aston Martin's Le Mans efforts in 1949, just 14 years prior. He became one of the most influential behind-the-scenes names of the automotive industry. Citing a prior trip to Europe, Lunn hypothesized that a winning car would need to travel at over 200 miles per hour, or one football field per second, while having... He probably said pitch. Yeah. Why do you guys call your sport soccer? Yeah, why? Why it's is football. it? Why you call it football? You're not even using feet except for that one time in the beginning, <laughs> and then after every touchdown, and then one more time at halftime. <laughs> why didn't? Why couldn't you just come up with your own name? He later said in an interview that, with the exception with, of, with the exception of land speed record cars, no vehicle has ever been developed to travel at speeds in the excess of 200 miles per hour on normal highways. These speeds are greater than the takeoff speed of most aircraft, but conversely, the problem will be to keep the vehicle on the ground. <laughs> Lund knew he had a big project on his hands. Oh, it's a real bushy one. This is a real bushy of a project. But before he can get started, he first had to get it approved. Go mm -hmm. get <laughs> talked to the boss then. On June 12th, 1963, less than a month after Henry Ford II, a.k.a. Hank Deuce, had sworn vengeance on Ferrari, Rory Lunn presented a highly confidential project to the board members at Ford. 
He presented a mid-engine car filled with custom-fabricated pieces. Mm. It was a car that looked like no other car because it was like no other car, except maybe in regards to the car it was based on. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The project was given the name GT40. (laughs) Because it was only... 40 inches tall. <laughs> that's kind of a weird metric to name your car after. Yeah, there's no other car that's named after the height. <laughs> <laughs> Land Rover did uh, cars named after the length. That's also kind of... Um, don't American car... Don't trucks name themselves after how much they can tow? Like, what's a like 3,500? I think it's like bed capacity. Bed capacity? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And remember... Ford also wanted to humiliate Chevy. In a memo written by Lunt, he addressed the GT40 as a high-performance two-seater sports car prototype that, if produced in low volume, will neutralize the Corvette image by substantially better performance and by surpassing it in style and feature appeal. Mm -hmm. According to participants, the entire project took less than five minutes to get approved. The remaining 55 minutes of the meeting was spent discussing market strategy for Ford's new Corvette killer. Oh, how are we going to position this in the market? I think posters. Yeah, posters. <laughs> we'll put posters everywhere. Oh, what if we did? What if we showed a picture of like a Corvette? Yeah. And just like a GT40 on top of it, just humping its brains out. <laughs> what? Yeah, you know, it's just like freaking humping its little. Corvette brains out. (laughs) Or maybe, okay, what if, okay, maybe not that. Okay, what if we just make a poster, right? Okay. And the the Corvette is like in the corner. Yeah. Crying. Okay. And the GT40 is just humping its wife's brains. He's just humping the brains out of the Corvette's wife. (laughs) What the people at Ford... Uh, what the people at Ford had determined was that in order to beat a European car company, you had to do it on European soil using European expertise. You can do it in their own room. <laughs> so Ford contracted a small British motorsport company in a dingy industrial park located in Slough, UK, just outside of London, and sent his 
advanced design lead Roy Lunn back to his homeland, as well as about $1.7 million to utilize however he saw fit in order to kick the most Italian ass possible. It's kind of lame that he gave him a million dollars more than he was willing to give Ferrari. Yeah, what the heck? Ford wanted someone with experience beating American muscle to help lead the team. And for <laughs> You got some experience doing that. <laughs> hey, and, <laughs> nice. And for that role, they found no one more suited to the task than the Corvette killer himself, Carol Shelby. Yeah. As author A.J. Bame states in his book, Go Like Hell, Carol Shelby had created a business model that depended on winning races. If the cars didn't win, the cars wouldn't sell. His company lived and died on the track. They brought along Shelby primarily to get the advanced vehicle division started as he was preoccupied with his own Le Mans GT division entry, which we'll cover in depth on our next episode. Once in England, Shelby found a small race car engineering company operating out of Huntington, England, Lola International LTD, a company named after the hit 1955 song, Whatever Lola Wants. Lola gets. She sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> Lola International was founded in 1958 and unfortunately went out of business in 2012. 2012. Yeah, they were around for a while. Huh. In 2012, after failing to secure proper funding from F1 grants. But at the time, Lola was just starting to come into its own. Hmm. In fact, compared to the conditions at Lola, Ford's division in slow looked like paradise. Lola was famous for designing and producing hardy all-aluminum body race cars. They initially made various single-seater front-engine race cars for Formula 1, Formula 2, and Formula 3. But when Lund entered their shop, it wasn't the Formula cars that caught his attention. He was enamored by the Lola Mark VI, a fiberglass-bodied race car that still utilized the then-new Ford 260 V8 which was capable of making about 350 pretty jacked horse pairs. Wow. The Turk alone could eviscerate tires, turning the best Dunlop rubbers they could find into smoke. Wow. A.K.A. it had a lot of torque. <laughs> Only three Lola Mark VI's were ever built, of which Lund and Shelby bought two of them, and Jay Leno owns the third. My Fun best fact. friend, Jay Leno. Yeah. Shouts to Jay. I know you're out there, buddy. I know you're listening in the garage. Yeah, man. He's an early adopter podcast. Yeah. He loves Donut. Does he? I don't know. Okay. Jesse and Matt and I went to his garage. Right. And we walk in and dude was eating a steak <laughs> for lunch. Like a steak, a baked potato, and some steamed broccoli. Damn. It was just like, hell yeah. I of course the, that's what you eat. <laughs> well, anyway, the the Mark VI literally became the prototype for all GT40s. If you look at the pictures, the similarities of the two cars are pretty apparent. Lola and Ford agreed upon a collaboration in the design of the GT40 and signed a two-year contract together, though it did not take much time for Lola's CEO, Eric Broadley, to clash with Ford. He recalled that Ford took a somewhat uptight approach to racing, stating that there is no deviation from the script. Well, motor racing is about as far removed from that as you can get. I guess he's saying that motor racing is full of improv. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you what. I think you do pretty well then. If someone told me not to deviate from the script, I'd say, yeah, right. <laughs> Here's my Amazon login. How would you buy yourself a clue? <laughs> Get same day delivery. Damn. Scripted? 
sure, somewhat, for the info. And then the director's like, sir, you're a featured extra. Get the f*** off my set. (laughs) (laughs) Idiot. (laughs) (laughs) The guy from Lola wanted to be able to move around on his feet, and Ford was like, "Uh uh-uh. Sounds like Ford has a lot of opinions and not a lot of experience. A lot of structure going on at Ford. But following the script was all right for Ford, especially for Carol Shelby. In fact, he brought on his old friend and ex-Aston Martin team boss, John Wire, to the project, and the two got cracking. The hardest part about the design of the car was the time frame they had to do it in. After the failed deal with Ferrari, the team at Ford's advanced vehicle department were given less than 10 months to design a perfect Le Mans car, basically from scratch. The 1964, 24 hours of Le Mans, was only about 250 days away, and the publicity of the project had already shined a major spotlight on them. Oh, no. While the design of the car was still being created, Lund traveled throughout Europe purchasing the best state-of-the-art components he could find. The selection of these components was crucial, as the failure of even a single piece would lead to a DNF. Now, hopefully, there's some people who aren't already into cars listening to this. DNF means does not finish. Yes, sir. And it would turn the entire project into a marketing disaster for Ford. The, what I'm saying, Nolan, yes. is the stakes were high. Yeah. The eyes of the world were on Shelby and Ford. They had to succeed. Or they wouldn't be Corvette killers. They'd be Ford killers. Themselves. Themselves. Initially, a 3 8 model of the car in clay had been created back in Ford's styling studio in Dearborn, Michigan. Dearborn, Michigan. Great place. Designers painted it blue and white, the American racing colors, and shipped the entire model to the University of Maryland, where it would undergo extensive wind tunnel testing. Kind of funny that they don't have their own wind tunnel over there. It's just a funny sentence. Using the data they had collected in the tunnel, (laughs) Lund projected the top speed would be near 210 miles per hour, faster than anything Ferrari could compete with. You can't whistle? Mm -mm. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) the style of the car represented a huge change in motor racing the size and shape alone made it extraordinarily unique to the race track she said yeah (laughs) along with its shockingly low stature every square inch of the body had been designed to pierce through the air like a missile wind tunnel testing was not the only innovative technology used to design the gt40 Another groundbreaking tech was the computer. Wow. The computer simulations were used to design every portion of the suspension, allowing the car to simulate traveling on different inclines and surfaces and speeds. There's a sim. That's crazy. They built a sim. Back in the 60s. In the 60s. They also really lowballed Ferrari. (laughs) They're like, yeah, you can have like $4 to do your racing crap. What? No. Oh, let's build a sim. It was the most advanced method of suspension design done by any company in the entire world up to that point. The obvious choice for the engine was a modified 256 cubic inch Fairlane V8, which made about 350 horsepower for the race. This engine made the most sense as the Fairlane V8 was available in most of the Ford lineup and a win in Le Mans. With the revolutionary GT40 would be great publicity and marketing for the engine. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a no-brainer marketing-wise. But uh, it's 
kind of a no-brainer. Uh, what engine are we going to use? I think I got an idea. <laughs> but the car had to be durable. The transmission was sourced from an Italian company called Colati, which sounds like a frozen dessert. Yes, it does. Delicious. Ooh, can I get a pineapple Colati? Ooh, delicious. It was developed in the same town as Ferrari. Wow. The 24-hour race basically amounted to a torture test of each individual component of the car, and the transmission was obviously no exception. Drivers would shift gears over 9,000 times throughout the race and had to decelerate safely from 200 miles per hour to 35 miles per hour in a matter of feet. While parts had been sourced and engines had been modified, the actual physical construction of the car did not start until mid-December, seven months after the design had began. He's fucking waiting? Yeah. <laughs> Other teams- like, what are you doing? <laughs> Other teams at the time had been experimenting with newer, lightweight alloys and other material composites in their frame construction. But since the GT40 project was on a tight schedule, they had no choice but to stick with thick steel for the frame. But the body was made of fiberglass, like the Corvette. A full-size mock-up had been sent from the styling studio in Dearborn to a company named Specialized Moldings LTD, who then shipped the fiberglass skin to the project in Slough. By mid-January, the progress reports from Lund were not looking hopeful. He admitted that the car was well behind schedule and attributed the delays to the human nature aspects of forming a new team, i.e. <laughs> everyone was just f***ing arguing. <laughs> <laughs> the human nature aspects of forming a new team. Nobody likes me <laughs> and nobody respects me as a leader because I say stuff like, the human nature <laughs> aspects of forming a new team. They had spent 12-hour day after 12-hour day together and then had been forced to give up most weekends and holidays just to make oh deadlines. God. Certain members at this point in January weren't even on speaking <laughs> oh terms, God. which is not a level of communication you strive for in any engineering department. They could barely force each other to get along, and they were running out of time. Lund declared the build time would then be forced to run in tandem oh. to race prep. Oh, no. Can you imagine, like, you're... Okay, Ford has mm -hmm. paid your company millions of dollars to build this race car, uh -huh. but you, no one looks each other in the eye. <laughs> yeah, and Lund's like, hey, can you pass me that spanner? You get that spanner yourself! <laughs> It sounds horrible. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. On April 1st, 1964, the first Ford GT40 was completed. 11 months after putting pencil to paper. Wow. This guy talks like a f***ing dick. I have to wonder if it's just like all printed, and hopefully he didn't actually sound like that, mm -hmm. but... I don't 11 know. months after putting pencil to paper. Mm. And he's like congratulating himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The car was finished only three weeks before Le Mans testing oh would begin. And despite Eric Broadley pulling out of his two year contract to supply bodies for the car, <laughs> oh my God. everything else had turned out pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> All things considered, pretty good. Dude, I want to meet this one guy. He sounds like the worst. Like he's just like so. <laughs> 
Like the one person who likes him, yeah, is Hank Deuce. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Hank Deuce sounds like the worst. These guys are just like sitting in their study, drinking brandy, smoking cigars, talking yeah. about <laughs> everybody else. How like everything is everybody's fault. Wow. This was the biggest amount of money dumped into any race car up until this point in history. <laughs> and I just want to remind everybody that they lowballed the F yeah. out of Enzo Ferrari and then went and built the most yeah. expensive race oh. car. Millions of dollars had been poured into the creation of the GT40. Anything the design team wanted, they got <laughs> as long as it made the car faster. Hope I, I'm glad that last part's on there because it was just like, hey, you guys get anything you want, man. Put on the tab. It's just like, can we get a ping pong table? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd love pinball. Yeah. Ask for one of those. <laughs> okay, so the press conference was set to take place on April 3rd. Oh Don Frey wanted to reveal the car on the opening day of the New York Auto Show. And despite protests by Lund and Wire claiming that the car wasn't ready and needed to be tested, they had no choice but to comply with the executives above them. The car was shipped to New York City where it would be revealed to a horde of reporters uh, none other by Ford and Mr. Lee Iacocca himself. Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca. People were absolutely enamored with this car. This was a Ford that could go 95 miles per hour in reverse. When Henry Ford II, Hank Deuce, saw the car for the first time, he was awestruck. He wondered what his grandfather, Henry Ford, who probably would have hated the car, would have said about such an endeavor. He knew that his father, Etzel, would have loved the damn thing, but Hank Deuce was not the only one who was taken aback with the beauty of the car. In fact, everyone was. Reporters swooned, not only over the car, but over the story. Ford versus Ferrari, an epic showdown. You couldn't write a better plot than that. Mm. Lee Iacocca stood before a crowd of reporters, thirsting for information on this beautiful marvel of engineering, and gave his presentation. This car is not just an American racing car. This is the world car, an embodiment not of a Detroit company, but of a global friggin' empire. That's crazy. Iacocca was talking a big game back in New York, but Wire, Lunn, and the rest of the team were not so convinced just yet. The mom practice days were just two and a half weeks away, and the car had barely even been started at this point. Like... The engine probably hadn't been started, I would say. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because they finished. Anyway. The team at Ford's advanced vehicle division knew they had a lot of sleepless nights ahead of them. I haven't slept in three <laughs> months. <laughs> okay, guys, uh, I know we've been working really hard under a really tight deadline, but turns out that was the easy part. <laughs> <laughs> a few days after the New York Auto Show, the car touched down back in England, immediately testing. Oh, they flew it. Wow. Yeah. Immediately, testing began at Goodwood Racetrack. Wire's job was to bring it to the best driving talent he could find. The first person he found was a young New Zealander with one leg longer than the other named Bruce McLaren. Oh. While he may have worn corrective footwear, you could always identify him due to his limp when he wore his racing suit. It's crazy. Bruce McLaren was a top-rated engineer and champion pilot, and he was the first driver to be associated with Ford's Le Mans project. McLaren loved test piloting cars. He referred to them as untuned pianos, stating, A racing car chassis is like a piano. 
He can make something that looks right with all the wires, the right length, the right size, and pretty close to the right settings. But until it's tuned, it won't play so well. I love that quote. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, that guy rules. Yeah. Uh, Weir gave Bruce McLaren specific instructions to drive at, quote, medium speeds, no faster than 145 MPH. Alongside Bruce McLaren stood champion racing driver Phil Hill. (laughs) Name that rhymes. Phil Hill had a legendary history as a driver for Ferrari, but in the year prior, he had tested his luck with a new and soon debunked Italian racing firm called ATS. Unfortunately for Phil, that entire arrangement turned sour and he failed to win a single race or even finish a single event in 1963, which left him without a ride for the 1964 Le Mans until he was contracted by Weir to lead the American effort alongside McLaren. So he's like a big name, Mm -hmm. goes to a small team, probably wants to help out, and then they just suck. So everyone thinks he sucks and he's just without luck. Yeah. Uh, The press claimed his poor performance was due to a loss of nerve, stating he cracked under pressure, which is one of the worst things a driver could have attributed to him. Yeah, like like in Ricky Bobby, he saw the fear. Yeah. Or in Days of Thunder, he saw the fear. That's right. Uh, The insults hurtled at him by the press were nearly career-ending. You know what? This press. (laughs) I know. I know you and I have gone through our troubles with the press. (laughs) Leave us alone. Yeah. Let me and my son live. Yeah. <laughs> Once he signed on with Ford, the press somehow transformed from mocking him by calling him Mickey Mantle in a Ferrari years earlier to Hamlet in goggles and gloves. That probably made sense at the time. Hasn't aged well as a good nickname. <laughs> Hamlet was an idiot, right? I can't remember. It's been a while since I took English in high school. He was once one of the most accomplished racing drivers in the world, and Ford had provided him the opportunity to prove once again that he had what it takes to keep that title. On April 18, 1964, Le Mans test days began for all teams. McLaren and Hill were contractually obligated to race for the Cooper team that weekend at the Entree 200 in England. So, two substitute drivers were procured for the test. Those two drivers were Roy Salvadori and Joe Schleicher. Salvadori was a former Le Mans champion driver, having driven in one under wire in 1959 for Aston Martin, while Schlesher was a French Ford dealership owner (laughs) who was actually known more for his ability to crash cars than race them. Great choice for a substitute driver. What the heck? Another, like, that's like such another, like, rich guy. Yeah. Yeah, right? Like, oh, here's this race car we've spent millions of dollars and Mm -hmm. tons of time and tons of heartbreak developing. Hey, you know that guy that crashes a lot? <laughs> yeah, he owns one of our dealerships. Yeah, let's let him drive. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Immediately, road testing began, and Salvadori took the wheel. After a single lap around the track, Salvadori pulled into the pit and exited the car visibly upset. I can't believe this, but I think we're getting rear wheel speed at 170 miles per. He was right. The car became terrifyingly unstable at speeds over 160, and mechanics weren't sure if it was due to a suspension or aerodynamic issue. Lund and Wire conferred and assumed that it was a suspension issue and began making adjustments accordingly to prevent rear liftoff, regardless of the cause. Salvadori was spooked, (laughs) (laughs) and he refused to get back in the car. Oh, my God. Schlesher 
Schlesser was eager to try out the amazing new car, (laughs) and he leapt into the driver's seat. He was given specific instructions to drive safely, but he had a reputation to uphold. (laughs) A reputation. I don't like where this is going. Crashing cars. Schlesser raced off, (laughs) disappeared. (laughs) Who is this guy? I just picture he's got like chocolate all over his face. You're like, did you give him a Coke? Don't give him a Coke. Give him sugar. <laughs> oh, it's my turn to drive. Wee oui, wee, oui, monsieur. Shusher raced off, disappearing around the first bend. After roughly four minutes, he appeared and, fl- and flew by the grandstands, completing his first oh, thank lap. Thank God he did it. <laughs> Again, he raced down the track and disappeared. The entire pit stood watching and waiting for the car to reappear, oh, but no. it never did. <laughs> a few minutes later, a phone call came stating that the GT40 had been in a devastating oh. crash, but the driver had survived. Oh, thank God. <laughs> It turned out that the car had begun fishtailing down the entire length of the Molson Strait, and he lost control traveling at roughly 160 miles per hour. Good Lord. He crashed in a small wooded area at a kink in the Molson Strait called Le Grand Coupon. <laughs> Somehow, he managed to escape such a high-speed crash with only a small gash on his forehead to show for it. Ford's testing for the day had come to an abrupt end. That's I, amazing. I like how this goofball <laughs> crashed this multi-million dollar car that all these people had spent months of their life just in agony yeah. creating. And he walks away with the coolest scar you can have. Walked away with a freaking scar from Lion King yeah. scar. Oh my goodness. The next day they resumed testing in the second and only other prototype of the GT40 in existence. Soon after testing began, Salvadori crashed that one too. No. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Would you let him drive it? Oh Ooh. My. You think I could have another spin? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Uh, Ford rep- uh, Ford representative called Don Frey with the news, stating that he was up to his <laughs> hips in shattered cars. Jesus. That makes it sound like it isn't his fault. That like, like I don't know what yeah, happened. Yeah, the cars are shattered over here when you got goofus over here. <laughs> like, literally, like goofus. We want your. Oh, my God. Le Mans was only two months away, and the test weekend had only brought multiple unexpected and unexplainable issues to their I got, an, I got a couple explanations. Yeah, I got an explanation for you, and dude. You know what? It's like George W. Bush says, okay, fool me once, shame on you. Yeah. Fool me twice, shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get fooled again. Can't uh, get fooled again. <laughs> a New York Times article published days after the test had concluded stated that, quote, people who know money think Ford can build a winner. People who know racing are not so sure. <laughs> that's some shade. That's, that's shady. Wow. The GT40 tests were surrounded in bad publicity. I wonder why. But luckily <laughs> for Ford, Iacocca had an ace in the hole. <laughs> His hole. <laughs> Sorry. Iacocca managed to shroud the bad publicity in the race with a $10 million blitzkrieg of media in order to embed Ford's newest car deep, deep into the public consciousness. 
for iCoca had just unveiled at the World's Fair the new Ford Mustang, baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That thing, dude, we should probably do an episode on that some de- somewhere down the line, but like car press today is not like it was back then. Mm-hmm. People were obsessed with this thing because they didn't have phones to be obsessed with. Well, it, it just took over. Like Mustang mania was real. With the spotlight temporarily removed from the disastrous GT40 project, the team had a chance to diagnose and repair what had gone wrong. Uh, that goofus. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Wrecked it. <laughs> All while building brand new uh, four GT40s to replace the ones that it had been mysteriously totaled. The race was just around the corner weeks away. We've looked into the crashes, um, both of them, and we found that the issue in both crashes was the driver's hands were covered in jelly, <laughs> and he was slipping and sliding all over the wheel. Oh, my God. June 20th, 1964, race day. Ooh. Ford's public debut of the GT40 drew millions of eyes from all over the globe. The turnout at Le Mans was incredible. Officials state that it was the largest crowd ever, capping at over 300,000 participants. Most of them, of course, had come to see what newspapers and television had promised to be the biggest rivalry to ever grace the track at Le Mans. Ford versus Ferrari, the final bout. The big one. (laughs) Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And into Monday. (laughs) And into Monday. Saturday afternoon to Sunday afternoon. You're going to pay for the seat, and you're probably going to need it because it's a day-long race. It's a day-long race. You're going to want to sit down for this. You can stand for maybe an hour. Anyway, few modifications were made to the GT40 in the few weeks after testing. A spoiler had been added to the rear of the car to prevent the catastrophic liftoff at high speeds, but that was about it. Uh, Quote, the spoiler had the effect of putting feathers on an arrow, as Lund described it. Have you ever shot an arrow without feathers on it? No. Not as good. (laughs) I believe it. (laughs) It was immensely apparent on the first day of practice that this race would take place at historic speeds. Ferrari was releasing a newer and faster car every year under the lead of their new young chief designer. He proposed the idea of placing a 12-cylinder engine in the rear of the 250P, making Ferrari's first mid-engine race car. Little host note. A rear engine car is like the Porsche where the engine is behind the rear axle. Mm -hmm. Mid-engine is when it's between the cockpit and the rear axle. And front engine is when it's in front of the front axle or on it. And then mid-front engine is when it's behind the front axle. You learn something new every day. And hopefully you learn it on donuts. Although the decision was met with much resistance from Ferrari employees, it turned out to be the right one. The new mid-engine Ferrari 250P shattered almost every speed record in testing. Ferrari driver John Surtees was breaking his previous year's laps record by over 10 seconds. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Most of all, they had the confidence that Ford would never be able to truly compete with a purebred race car such as a Ferrari. Ferrari driver Luigi Cinetti even said in an interview, After all, uh, the best American sports car is the Jeep, but no. (laughs) (laughs) 
Give me the cigarette. <laughs> the biggest challenge that Ford was forced to overcome was the time they had to design their cars. While most race cars evolve over time, the GT40 was forced to evolve from nothing and hopefully have it done correctly on the first try. Uh... So yeah, the odds were against Ford at this race. Ferraris were beautifully balanced in all fine-tuned machines that had been perfected for years, while the GT40 was really just learning how to take its first steps. That's like taking Serena Williams, okay, potentially the greatest athlete in the history of athletics, and then putting her up against you, me, <laughs> in a tennis match. Yeah. We don't know how it's going to turn out, but I have a really good guess. <laughs> While Ferrari was across the paddock ringing their own bell, Wire was embracing his own racing philosophy. Unlike Enzo Ferrari, Wire believed in a team approach and that each driver was a cog in his victory machine. Each driver is a cog in my victory machine. Wire planned for Richie Ginther, an ex-Ferrari F1 driver and friend of Phil Hill, to play the role of the rabbit and try and drive the Ferraris into breaking down. So just to clarify that last part, Weir hoped that the Ferrari driver would drive so hard to outrun the Fords that mm -hmm. they would break themselves down? Yeah. Okay. And he tasked the one dude to be like, hey, make these guys chase you. Yeah. And then the other guy's going to win. Yeah. They prepared to launch in the style of a famous Le Mans start. As the clock struck 4 p.m., the race began. Drivers raced down across the track into their cars. On foot. <laughs> yeah, on foot. Engines roared to life as cars began to speed down the track in what inevitably became the world's fastest traffic jam. At least most of the cars started, except for Phil Hill's GT40, that is. Ford's Rabbit was immediately plagued with fuel evaporation issues, causing the car to stall as quickly as it had come to life. How embarrassing. That's so embarrassing. Other cars raced by him, forcing him to endure a deafening screech of exhaust <laughs> notes. <laughs> uh, mechanics flooded to his car, but no one was able to properly fix the complicated Italian carburetor design. The only person qualified for such a repair was the representative sent by the carb company, but he was denied entry into the pits from the race officials. By the time he finally got going, he had fallen 22 minutes behind and was now sitting in... 44th place. Luckily for Ford, though, Hill was a master endurance driver, and he knew exactly how to drive to catch up. Uh, yeah, so like in these big endurance races, that sounds like a lot, and it is, but like there, it is possible to come back from such a big deficit. Um, he was able to find and follow every perfect racing line, shaving seconds off the expected lap time. After all, the difference between a four-minute lap and a three-minute and 58-second lap equal to about 25 miles over the course of the race. True concentration is not aware of itself, Hill explained. By 5.30 p.m., every GT40 was still incredibly on track and going strong. That is impressive. Richie Ginter was leading the race with Surtees behind in second. At 5.30, he pulled in for a pit stop, and Ford was faced with a terrible, unexpected lesson. If your car is the fastest and most agile on the field, none of that matters if your pit stops are slow. By the time Ginter left the pits, two minutes and seven seconds had passed, just long enough for Surtees to take the lead yet again. These guys are a bunch of boneheads. <laughs> <laughs> A little more than four hours into the race, Ford had its first catastrophe. It's already had three! <laughs> Richard Atwood's car burst into flames okay. as he was flying down the track. Thankfully, Atwood recognized 
The smoke billowing from his engine just behind his head and stopped the car and pulled off to the side before it had the chance to cause any serious injuries. One of the three GT40s was now out for the count, totaled by the flames that engulfed its fiberglass body. Later investigation revealed the cause of the fire. While the fuel lines that were suspended above the engine were supposed to be made of an ultra-strong synthetic material, they were actually constructed of regular nylon. The lack of durability oh in the lines combined with the extreme temperatures had led to the fuel lines in Atwood's car to melt. Oh my God. Causing the car to burst into flames. Wire commented on the entire incident stating, this was a result of almost criminal negligence. It was a miracle no other cars were affected. The fuel lines went over the engine. That's insane. Yeah, and they're made of fucking <laughs> plastic. <laughs> you, you don't think it can get worse? Mm -mm. And then it gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> Shortly after this event, within an hour, Master Gregory, who shared a car with Richie Ginter, broke down during the fifth hour of the race. Gregory was having issues getting the car out of second gear, so he brought it into the pit. Within the pit, it was discovered that the Kaladi transmission had failed. Roy Lund couldn't help but admire the irony in this specific component failing. Kaladi transmissions were designed and manufactured in Modena, Italy, the same hometown as Ferrari. Ford was now down to one car, and that was the car piloted by Phil Hill, and Bruce McLaren. At midnight, McLaren took over for Hill. He later described that four-hour shift as the best 500 racing miles I've ever covered. Wow. By 1 a.m., 20 of the 55 cars had dropped out of the race, and Hill and McLaren had miraculously driven the Ford from 44th on the pole all the way up into 5th. Wow. Onlookers were shocked as their GT40 blazed around the track. The good kind of blazed, not the bad kind. Hey, isn't that the car that the chocolate guy crashed in? <laughs> We we won't be more. <laughs> Hill and McLaren's GT40 was easily the fastest on the field. At 5:20 a.m., Hill set a lap record of three minutes, 49.2 seconds. But the new record celebration was short-lived. Minutes later, Hill was forced to pull into the pit. The same Kaladi transmission had failed in third, and the final GT40 was out of the race. Wow. Ferrari finished first, second, and third in 1964, while Ford was stuck with a DNF, getting nowhere near the finish line. Henry Ford's second, filled with rage, vowed that Ford would return next year, and was determined to show Ferrari that Americans could do just as good a job as them. I know I've said it before, but this time I mean it. <laughs> Ford wanted to win, and there was only one man he knew that was able to beat Ferrari at Le Mans, because... He had done it before. Hi, I'm Carol Shelby, and performance is my business. Wow. <laughs> That's where we'll pick up next time on Past Gas. What a hubris. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what a bunch of idiots. <laughs> That's insane. Oh, we can do this. Just th Yeah, it's just like throwing money at a problem, yeah. and that's what you get. I mean, that's the lesson here. For sure. Yeah, you can't just throw money at a problem. Wow. So next time we'll talk about the life of Carroll Shelby Ooh, leading the up. The coolest dude. Yeah, he's really the coolest dude. We'll talk about uh, his early life, his uh, experience at Le Mans, and how he helped change the horrendous GT40 at this point. He's like all of our favorite dude. Yeah, he's the best. He really is. And uh, I can't wait to dive really deep into him. Um, just right into Carroll Shelby. Dude, I f can't wait to get into that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
yeah check out if you're not a donut fan already i hope you are by now um check out our youtube and our facebook and our instagram mm-hmm. um all of those are at donut media um follow me on instagram at james pumphrey um follow nolan at nolan j sykes thank you this is really fun again and i can't wait i can't wait till the next one yeah all right super fun bye bye wait we can't steal that angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well i absolutely love this because you know if you own a home it can be really hard to maintain it's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small well whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.